KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. This is KYW News Radio In Depth. I'm Matt Leon. The Gabby Petito murder and the investigation into who was responsible for her death is the latest example of a tragic crime story that has captured the attention of the nation. We wanted to talk about America's fascination with true crime, from news coverage to endless TV shows and documentaries to some people actually trying to become amateur digital sleuths and working the internet to try and bring attention to, if not outright, try and solve a murder or missing person case. But what are the dangers of that? And why is it that certain cases get wall-to-wall coverage and attention, while other similar ones toll quietly in obscurity? Dr. Bess Rowan is a visiting assistant professor of theater and gender and women's studies at Villanova University, and she teaches a fascinating course that dives into all of this. So we caught up with her to talk about it all. Give a listen. So I'm fascinated with this course that you teach, Gender, Performance, and True Crime. Kind of give me the pitch, kind of give me the overview of what this course is all about. Sure. Well, I actually got the idea because a student in my introduction to gender and women's studies class asked me if I would ever consider talking about that topic as it pertains to true crime. I had a few students who early on would be talking about podcasts they were listening to in the classroom, and I listened to a lot of true crime podcasts. So I would jump in and we would chat about it. And when the student asked me if it could ever be a course, I said, you know, it could. Now, I'm not a criminologist. Uh, I do have some training in psychology and sociology. Uh, but what I really was fascinated by is the way that we tell true crime stories, which is a tricky thing, right? Because true crime stories, quote unquote, are people's lives and generally narratives of the worst moments of people's lives to the exclusion of most of the rest of their lives. But there is a recognizable way that these stories are packaged in podcasts, in true crime documentaries, uh, both single movies and kind of series. I mean, the ID network on TV has made an entire channel that does this. So there is some form of narrative. And anytime we're making a story, we're choosing what to include and what not to include. And one of the things we often choose to include are easy stereotypes uh, that are based on real patterns of, you know, who are victims of crimes and who are perpetrators of crimes. But every time we do that, I want people to be mindful of what's not being included. And I particularly want my students to push back against the kind of easy narratives because, again, no one's story fits neatly into a 50 minute, you know, episode of a TV show. There's always something else. That is what the, the class is structured around. We do um, listen to podcasts. We listen to some true crime docs about various cases. And we also look at real statistics from sociology uh, in particular and some criminology about, you know, what these statistics about missing women look like, the coverage of those cases, things like that. So that is that is the case in a nutshell. And students get to do their own research on a case that they choose uh, at the end of it as well. You mentioned the ID channel, and there are other channels that maybe aren't completely based on true crime, but at least a small percentage, if not a lot of their programming, is this. Um, Is this the infatuation or the, the interest in true crime? Is this a relatively new phenomenon 
in American society? Like, and when I say new, I mean like last 30, 40 years, you know, or is this something that if you look back 100, 150 years, the vehicles of talking about it and the vehicles of covering it were different, but the the insatiable thirst for more details and, and constant coverage of things like this has always been there. That's a great question. I want to cite a very specific book that talks about this by Judith Flanders. It's called The Invention of Murder, How the Victorians Reveled in Death and Detection and Created Modern Crime. Because the whole book basically answers that question that certainly I, I think it would be ridiculous to argue that in the past really 20-ish years, that true crime hasn't exploded as a kind, as a genre in and of itself. But the way that we're used to kind of looking at detective stories, which is kind of, I think, the um, introduction into this kind of realm, right? It generally started by focusing on detectives who were following these cases. And then it started to move away from that into, ooh, let's look at the story itself the victim, the perpetrator sometimes. So I think that the the Victorians um, were the people who began this. Obviously, you know, one of the, the true crime touchstones is uh, Jack the Ripper, one of the most famous, you know, unsolved cases. So I think that yes and no. <laughs> yes, it's been around for a lot longer. It didn't just come out of nowhere uh, as, you know, cultural trends don't usually do, even if they appear like that, it's been lurking. But really the other thing that is noticeable is the demographic of the audience for this kind of true crime work is predominantly women, which I think is also interesting because again, this is a population that throughout history has not always been considered an equal audience for various kinds of things. So as you know, we can more freely partake in different kinds of media uh, and, you know, purchase books and get all of these different kinds of stories to us in different ways as women who are interested in this. I think that that's also that that accounts for what we're seeing in the real uptick in the past kind of, again, 20, 30, 40 years. But also to to kind of go back to something I said a second ago, I do think there's a very notable difference in how these stories are structured from long ago versus now. We do tend to have, uh, there are detectives, celebrity detectives like Paul Holes, um, who caught the Golden State Killer, who are, you know, famous, famous names in sort of true crime. But I do think these days that we are also seeing just kind of a narrative that focuses on a victim story, or unfortunately, a narrative that focuses on a perpetrator story, which is less healthy in certain ways, uh, although I get the fascination. We know so many women go missing. So many women are killed. What is it about certain cases that catches the public's fancy as opposed to all the others? And I'll kind of add to that, once again, as someone who does not follow this a lot, it seems like the ones that catch fancy are young white women. Am I crazy? No, you are not crazy at all. Um, so the late PBS news anchor Gwen Ifill is really the one credited with coining the term missing white woman syndrome, uh, which for her and, on, and the way that it's used now generally means that if there is a sort of young, you know, vaguely around the 20s white woman who is missing, that case will receive a lot more critical attention than, for example, 
a missing black woman, a missing um, indigenous woman. That's that is an entire other part of this discussion. And I do certainly think that we can say for a fact that the coverage of something like the Gabby Petito case owes a great deal to this phenomenon. That is part of a gender narrative, right? That like young white women are seen as particularly innocent and the everyman of that kind of situation, right? And I think, you know, a, a really important point about, again, looking at the incredible response that people have had to something like the Gabby Petito case, what people are saying is not that missing persons cases and unfortunately murder cases should not have this kind of attention, but that more people than Gabby Petito should have their cases garner this kind of attention. But yes, I mean, statistically, one of the things that's really fascinating and one of the things we talk about in my course is that, yeah, the majority of victims we're talking about are young women and the majority of true crime fans are young women. So that's really interesting. What What's going on there? Why why are we who are sort of in, vaguely in that target range uh, looking at these kinds of stories? And I think an important statistic to note is that actually the largest demographic who is likely to be a victim of violent crime in the United States overall is actually young white men. But they are often killed by someone they know. So the difference comes that if someone is likely to be to be a victim of something like a serial killer, that victim is overwhelmingly likely to be a woman. So I think that we're also seeing that not all kinds of cases are equally interesting to a true crime audience. Again, back to this idea that there are certain pathways that these stories follow. We do have a genre of missing white women. Uh, the most famous one in that genre, I believe, is Maura Murray, um, who has more articles and there's a podcast devoted to her case entirely that has something like over 250 episodes. There is a subreddit. There, there are all sorts of things for this one case that is less than 20 years old. And again, it's not that she shouldn't get that kind of attention, but I don't see that kind of attention for Asia Degree. For example, who was a young black girl who went missing, uh, was last seen walking along the side of the road at a very early hour in the morning. And the FBI has taken on her case, but she doesn't have, you know, a million people looking at her case online all the time. There's not as much information about it. Uh, there's not as many tipsters. And if you think about an innocent victim, <laughs> an under 10 year old girl would seem to be the perfect person that we're talking about, right? And again, I mean, I mean perfect in the sense of looking at the narrative and the way that media picks up on the narrative. These people are all living people who have full lives, again, outside of these terrible events that happen to them, even when they're quite young. So you talk about narrative and you mentioned earlier details that are not included. There seems to be a part of this that we we want this, like you said, a 50-minute we want the beginning, we want the, the apex, we want the resolution, and life doesn't work like that. It's not how the real world works. So how much does needing that narrative kind of skew the way we look at things? Oh, so much, so much. And um, that is actually <laughs> the, the exercise I use at the, at the start of my class um, is actually to talk about the Sneha and Philip case, 
with my students, who is a, a woman who went missing either the day before 9-11-2001 or on 9-11-2001. And what I do is most people haven't heard of that story. And I tell them, okay, this woman was a young um, Indian American doctor and uh, medical doctor. And she, uh, you know, lived close to the trade centers. She went missing around 9-11. What do you think happened? So if you've only got those facts, you could say to yourself, well, clearly maybe she rushed to help. She saw what was going on. They needed medical personnel. Then you start adding in other layers because of course she was a real person. She was on probation uh, at her most recent hospital job. Uh, she'd been accused of drinking on the job. She was actually last seen the night before she was shopping. She never went back to her home. Uh, so the, the more you add these layers, then I stop after each of those facts and say, okay, now what do we think? If I tell you the story with this fact, now what do we think? So again, because nobody's perfect and it, we, we have this desire for the victims to have never done anything wrong for them to end up being a victim. Uh, and again, that, that is not to victim blame. I'm not saying anyone puts themselves in danger, but that our stories are never complete. We don't know every second of everyone's day. And you just don't know what's happened if someone is missing. So I think it's really crucial that when we look at these stories, then specifically stories, the way that these, these narratives are told, we look at what's elided, what's passed over, right? Uh, we always have the kind of like this person lit up the room and lots of people light up the room and that's wonderful. But what, what else was going on in their lives? How could they have crossed paths with someone who might've wanted to do them harm? And that's what we kind of have to think about, because, again, it is the, the short version of this generally goes into, well, there's a bad guy somewhere and then there's a person who just happens to be walking along. And that is true sometimes. But also sometimes people are not that simple. Both sides of that are not that simple. So I really want us to to pay attention to the questions we should be asking about people's histories. For example, one of the easiest things that stories kind of brush over is history of domestic violence with people, you know, especially women, right? And again, not that women are the only victims of domestic violence, but the victims of domestic violence tend to be more, uh, skew more towards women than other groups. And I think that that is, again, something that comes up generally later than the original narrative right? It tends to be added on afterwards. So again, back to the Gabby Petito case, this is something that we didn't hear initially, right? We heard, oh, this perfect couple, this woman went missing. What happened? They were all over, you know, Instagram and we were seeing their, th them in all of these different social media ways. But then people were like, oh, wait, but there are these accusations of domestic violence in there. That is a radical piece of information that shifts what we initially saw. So how come we didn't start there? Brian Laundrie hasn't been convicted of anything right now, but that is a piece of information that we that we should still have, right? That is something, again, that you see in case after case uh, that is added after the initial attack of, of here is the story, the sensationalized story. So that's what I'm kind of trying to push people to um, look at. Again, the, the particular ways that that gender assumptions and stereotypes play into these stories and how that can brush over important facts that would actually give us a better understanding of what really happened.
as much as we can tell. To the point of, and you kind of went into this into an earlier answer, but I'm fascinated with the idea that it's mostly women that are following that get really involved in these cases. And it's, it's mostly women who are victims and to the point of which ones rise to the top. This is basically, I think, maybe a lot of people holding a mirror up and saying that this young woman could be me. And if I were to go missing, everybody should be looking for me. So it kind of, I don't know if caters to the audience is, is what I'm trying to say, but the fair. audience cares about people that look like them and can see themselves being the victim and would want the response that these cases get. Am I on to it there? Yes, yes, that's that's absolutely part of it. And yeah, I mean, certainly also true crime fans tend to be overwhelmingly white as well. Uh, and it's it is interesting. I mean, I have I have done quite a bit of research in this area to see why is it that people are fascinated by these tales? Um, and part of it is that they're cautionary, right? We think we're getting information about how to keep ourselves safe from these other stories. That's not always true, of course, right? Um, because again, it's no one's fault that they're a victim. Like it, the, things happen, but we have this idea that if we just gather these stories, we can avoid whatever um, bad things befall these, these people. But it's also, um, it, there's a very interesting article that talks about uh, how it's also kind of innate in us, these are sort of our version of like Aesop's fables, right? And that's what's really interesting too, is that these are not made up stories. They're real people's stories, but they're serving the same function in terms of teaching us how to be in the world today. That used to be the place that used to be taken by allegorical tales. And I think that also accounts for some of what's happening in terms of how we have to smooth out these stories to be more palatable and more packageable for, you know, bite-sized viewing and bite-sized listening. Uh, so that's really interesting too. And there are tons of other, other reasons uh, that people listen to it. I mean, it is a form of entertainment. And I don't mean entertainment to say that everyone's having fun, but that it is for me, for example, really interesting to look at the range of human behavior that you see in these stories. And again, I, I think that that can't be without a value judgment. Um, obviously, it's not all equally interesting, but I do think that this is part of what we're seeing, right? We're seeing that people are looking at these stories, they're saying, oh, that could have been me. And if it was me, I'd want, I'd want a podcast about me. But I'd also, you know, I, I asked my students at one point, like some of these cases, people are going into their, their text messages and stuff like that. And I say, imagine that you went missing, unfortunately, and someone had your phone and they opened it up and they read all of your text messages to try to figure out where you were. Certainly all of that is information. It is not all information that's pertinent to whatever just happened. But also, can you imagine someone having access to all of that part of your life without you there to explain what's going on, right? We all have things that are going on that we wouldn't want in front of the world, but we would still want people to come after us to try to find us, right? So there's an interesting balance of like not wanting, not wanting to be fully exposed to the world, but also really wanting the world to be interested in you. 
And again, this, this is why we have hashtags and, and organizations like Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women, because we have entire groups of people who certain podcasts and certain um, other forms of media are trying to bring attention to those kinds of stories, but they're not, they're not all over the, um, the internet and, you know, are, they're not in our mouths as much as these other cases of white women. So we've got a, a whole generation of people who are not investigators or professional investigators or not police who work to try to solve these crimes, you know, on different modes of, you know, TikTok, Facebook, Twitter. And I'm torn on this. I think on one hand, it's a good more sets of eyes, you know, and people who I think for the most part are operating in good faith are trying to help, but also not maybe understanding kind of the rules of investigation and jumping to conclusions. So, and this is, I don't know if it's fair to say it this way, but overall, is this a good or a dangerous thing? That's such a good question. I mean, I think honestly that the the start of this trend that you're, you know, you're correctly pointing out was actually, you know, America's most wanted and unsolved mysteries. Both of those shows had this idea that you, the viewer at home, might have seen something that you don't even know that you saw. And if we could just put this story in front of you, you could call in and you could solve a mystery. And I think that idea is really attractive because if you see, you know, a victim and a perpetrator together before a crime happens and you don't know them, how would you know that something is about to happen? You might have seen something that you don't know that you saw. This idea, that's the part of it that I think is really important and is the reason we try to get cases like this out in front of everybody. The flip side of that is, of course, as you said, people, you know, spiraling on the Internet, trying to be helpful, trying so hard to be helpful. A, not all of us know know the rules of engagement, of course, and B, we don't have access to a police file. Therefore, we don't know everything about the case. Not that the police file also already knows everything about the case, but certainly with any active investigation, there has to be some part of it that's held back so that the investigation can happen. So we're already operating, anyone who's interested in true crime is operating at a deficit if you're not law enforcement, you know, or a private detective or in contact with the family. And even then you're only getting pieces of the story. The thing that is important here, I think, is that the vast majority of crimes, of violent crimes, are not mysteries. It is very obvious who has perpetrated the crime. The ones that get traction are the ones where the simple answer is not the answer. Those are the ones that we spiral about, the ones that we can't figure out. Those are sometimes missing person cases. Those are sometimes murder cases. Uh, but I think that what what is really telling is that, you know, both with the Golden State Killer and with the Tara Grinstead murder, which was another, you know, a true crime podcast kind of early in the wave-ish that got a lot of traction. There was a book, there was a great book by Michelle McNamara, unfortunately, who's deceased now, who, who was talking about the Golden State Killer. She got that case attention that got it solved. The same way that Payne Lindsay got Tara Grinstead's attention that got the case solved. But neither one of those amateur, um, and I mean that with love, uh, you know, we're, we're not, again, they, those people were not law enforcement, but they were passionate. They 
are passionate documentarians, they didn't solve those cases. But what they did was generate enough interest in getting the case solved. And I think that that is the best use of sort of the rest of the, the rest of the true crime community. How can we generate enough interest in really pushing a case forward faster? Uh, and again, faster in both of those cases, those cases are older. Really, I mean, it took decades for justice in the in the um, Golden State Killer case. And Tara Grinstead's case is, you know, decades old as well, a few decades old. Uh, so it's not that it's so fast, but the second that really force got generated around those stories, that's when the cases got solved. But as you also pointed out, people can you know, go go the other way in terms of looking at these investigations. They can decide that they know who the killer is, even though that person has been cleared for like good reasons in most cases, or wasn't in the consideration because they were absolutely in another place. Uh, and we see, you know, these people bringing in tips just because they have a gut feeling and that not panning out. And this has happened several times in the Delphi murders case with two young um, white teenagers who were uh, murdered out for a hike one day. And, you know, people have been convinced that that they have solved this case and this case is not solved. So, you know, there's a balance, right? There's gotta be a balance between drawing attention to a case and letting the people who actually have the information work it as much as possible. Not that law enforcement never makes mistakes, but, you know, the people who have access to the information are the front line. And that's hard because I do think that it is better ultimately that more people have access to information about missing people because that is how we find missing people often. But there's a line and, and we, have to, we have to get better at understanding our place in that. I have kind of a chicken or an egg question and I don't know if there's an answer. Sure. Does the media pick up on cases that social media brings attention to or does social media grab onto cases that they see in the media which it's very symbiotic so i don't i don't know if there's a line of demarcation where you can say this is how it works but what do you think drives it more that's a great question that depends and i think you're right yes of course it's symbiotic here's what i think happens if a news story doesn't pick something up immediately and then there gets to be a big following of the case online and there's a lot of, you know, hashtags and uh, information and, and, you know, protests and uh, things like that generated, then the media will will often kind of pick that up. But again, only if they feel like it's something they can really package and sell to people. And that's what's interesting, again, that like, back to the missing and murdered indigenous women, we've got cases there that, you know, people have tried to get in front of the media forever. And they're just never covered in the same way as these other cases, these cases of missing or murdered white women. Uh, so I think that it is absolutely something where sometimes the media is saying, hey, look at this interesting thing. And then people online are grabbing it from there. And sometimes it's people online going, hey, what's going on with this case? And the media going, oh, look, people are already talking about this. Maybe we should also talk about this. I will say, I mean, that I, in looking at the online communities that discuss these kinds of things, 
it is often the online discussion boards that are at the at the forefront of these things uh, for missing people because people don't people don't always know what's going on. Of course, in a missing persons, right? Did someone voluntarily leave or did was there foul play? Uh, that's sometimes hard to, for people to figure out at the beginning of these cases. Uh, so often it's people online going, nope, we're not going to wait for a news story. Something is wrong here. So I think that both of those groups are looking at the other one saying, what are you, what are you picking up on? What do you think is, is what people want to see and want to know? But I do think that the media is still a more closed system than the internet. So there are going to be things that are not covered there. And the internet at large, you know, outside of major news sites can take things on on their own, which again, as we just said, good in some respects, as long as they're not trying to like be the people solving the case without all the information. What would you recommend to get more cases out there, more cases that are outside the young, attractive white woman goes missing? What can be done to to try to draw, if not that same level of attention, at least raise the level of attention on all these other cases that we never hear about in, in any corner? So first of all, I think that any more regular coverage of a missing person's kind of area of the news would give people an opportunity to say, to not wait until a case is sensational to bring attention to someone who is missing. Uh, one of the podcasts I listen to, every other case that they cover, it's a case, it's a podcast called Crime Lines. Um, she makes sure that she covers one case of a missing and murdered Indigenous woman alongside whatever other case she's covering. Uh, and that is, I think, a really useful way of thinking about things. Not that one of those things should be supplementary to the other, but that certainly people are going missing all the time. So we shouldn't have to wait until one is particularly newsworthy to talk about that. If this is something we're, we we care about as a community of people, we want to find people who have gone missing, then maybe we just need to commit to, okay, who someone who went missing in the last week is going to be covered on this part of the news every single week. And in that case, again, you can really have a chance to look at and make sure that you're covering a wide range of demographics so that it's not just the person who, you know, is all over the the subreddit at the moment uh, so that we can actually bring attention to, to different kinds of stories. I think that, so I think that that, that focus is really important, but I also think that one of the, one of the trends you see in how missing person cases are investigated is that it's not that there's not a lot of knowledge in this area, because certainly there is, but people still tend, especially when it's young women, um, teenage years through, you know, their twenties, the first instinct is almost always, well, what if that person just left? And I mean, of course, sometimes people just leave and we know that. But if someone's family is coming to you and saying, this is really out of character, we have to take that seriously as a community. And, and certainly, you know, the hope is that law enforcement takes that seriously, which again, many of them do. But uh, there are still misunderstandings about how long you have to wait to report someone missing. You know, it used to be the case that you had to wait more than 24 hours, more than 48 hours in certain parts of this country. Uh, in most places, that is not true anymore. So you can report someone missing as soon as you feel like something is wrong. And that should be able to be investigated immediately. Because as we know, the first few 
hours, the first 24 hours, the first 48 hours in any crime are the time when you have the most information, the most fresh witnesses. People know what where they were. They know what they're doing. So I think that that's part of what's happening, too. And this is particularly has historically been a problem for missing cases of non-white women is that for some reason, the gut reaction there overwhelmingly seems to be, well, are you sure they didn't just go off by themselves? So that is that is part of what we're seeing here in terms of the coverage, because at that point, by the time you realize something is really wrong, maybe you don't have as much information to go to the media with. The media might deem it too late to cover these cases, you know, from a couple weeks back now. So I think that those two kind of points along the way are what we need to focus on if we want more equitable representation of these cases. Because again, everybody deserves this level of attention for a life that is has vanished. Someone probably knows something. It's it's quite hard to disappear without a trace these days. It's hard. You know, people have seen things they again might not know that they did. So how do we get those cases in front of the people who might actually be able to help? It's something we're all still working on. But I also think that I am heartened by the fact that as much as people did did want to help with something like the Gabby Petito case, and in fact, that people did come forward and say, hey, I saw them fighting. Hey, I saw them along the road at this point. Uh, that people also immediately said, well, it's really interesting that this case is getting so much attention when there are all of these other women over here who are missing, uh, who, who haven't garnered this kind of attention. It's important that people are looking at that and noticing it. And that hopefully that, that helps us be more mindful of the kinds of bias we have in covering certain cases above others, when really everyone deserves to be found. That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio in depth. You can listen to the podcast free anytime on the Odyssey app, and you can find it wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon.